Our scripture reading from today will be from Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Lamentations 2, 1 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying He calls Rampart and Wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Zion? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the day that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out his word, which he he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent the day day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. 
Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Catherine. Um, you know, um, most people aren't really looking for friends who are like religious, right? Usually when people are looking for, for buddies, the idea of, uh, hey, this is my really religious buddy isn't really something that you hear as an adjective of what people are looking for. But uh, the, the word religious can be used in good and bad ways. You know, often it's used in a bad way. But th- there can be no better friend than a mature Christian. M- m- mature Christians will make the best of friends. And, and one of the reasons that mature Christians will make the best of friends is because a mature Christian will have a good understanding about the doctrine and the nature of sin. And, and that might seem like an odd way to characterize a good friend. Like usually, oh, this is my, my good friend. They are, they're hilarious or they're fun or they're really smart or interesting. But you usually don't hear, and it would be weird to say this, but this is my good friend, really good understanding of the nature of sin. And if you said that, it might be like a kind of a, a jab, right? But, but the, the way you understand the doctrine and the nature of sin has a deep impact on how you experience other people and how other people experience you. And, and if you're often shocked at how some Christians can act, or if you're surprised by the evil you see in the world, or if you're surprised by the sin that emerges within you, then you might not have a good understanding about the doctrine and the nature of sin. Because the, the scriptures are pretty clear about this. I'm going to run through here. You don't have to try to keep up with these passages I'm going to unless you're just really quick on the draw. But Genesis 6, 5, we read this. The Lord saw that wickedness, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yikes, only evil continually. Some translations say only evil all the time. (laughs) There are some churches that say, you know, God is good. And the congregation says all the time. Then he says all the time, God is good. Well, you can kind of say, man, you can say man is only evil all the time. All the time, man is only evil, right? So, I mean, that's what the scriptures teach. Like it is deep within us. Jeremiah 17, another famous passage. uh, The heart is deceitful. Above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? That's a thing to ponder. The heart is deceptively, uh, is deceptive above all things. You can go deep on that. The Apostle Paul in his somewhat famous Romans 7, uh, uh, 15 and 19 says this, For I do not understand my own actions. Haven't we all been there? Why did I just do that, say that? I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, not what the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Ah, I mean, isn't that just so true? Paul says the good thing he wants to do, he doesn't do. And instead of that, he does the bad thing he doesn't want to do. We are so sinful that sometimes we're not even motivated to do something until someone tells us not to do it. Consider Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So in this passage, our sinful passions aroused by the law. So what arouses sinful passions? The law. The law not to do it. And like, I've said this before, but if I were to tell you, don't look at the ceiling for the rest of the time during this service, I would, I would implant in you a desire to look at the ceiling. It, it just does the same thing. Something about the law, the law's commands repel us. Mark Twain said it so well. He said this, Adam was but human. This explains it all. He did not want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was in not forbidding the serpent. Then he would have eaten the serpent, right? <laughs> and, so, and, and to make it worse, in our sinful nature, we're just hardwired to deny our sin. And, you know, we'll concede, you know, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. Um, but, but when we are called out by someone, something we said or something we did, don't you just find it instinctive to justify and validate yourself. In those moments, the, the whole idea of the nature and doctrine of sin hasn't traveled from our head to our heart. Like we'll, we'll affirm it on paper, but when someone questions us or calls us out, then we can tell actually maybe hasn't sunk all that deep into our hearts. And churches and pastors that do not teach clearly about sin are bad churches and pastors. And Christians who do not possess an understanding of the nature of sin cannot be mature, free, or happy Christians, and they might not even be saved. And so today, I want to focus on Lamentations 2, verse 14. And even though we, we read the whole thing, I, I think it's important to read the whole thing just to get the, the idea of what's happening. And I explained, if you weren't here last week, uh, you might want to listen to at least the first part of the message last week to kind of give a, an overview of what's happening. This is right after the, uh, the, the, the Babylonian exile. Actually, we're calling this series 587 BC. That's when uh, Judah was, was carried into Babylonian captivity. But, uh, but anyway, so what, what I want to do is, is hone in on Lamentations chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. So, so today I want to consider two ways to think about sin as it relates to Lamentations 2. One, unexposed sin is a threat to you. And two, exposed sin is a cause for hope. So, so first, let's talk about unexposed sin as a threat. So in verse 14, we read that the false prophets of Jeremiah's day were giving false and deceptive visions, and in doing so, they were not exposing the people's sins. And you know, 
one thing I, I think about sometimes is, is how I should measure success as, as a pastor. You know, like maybe if you're like a coach, you have wins and losses, or if you have a business, there's kind of the, the, the bottom line with finances and all that. And there's some jobs, and I know some of us in here have these, that it's, it's a little bit more difficult to uh, evaluate, you know? Um, and so, so anyway, I, I wonder, it's a helpful question for me to ponder. Some, sometimes, you know, I think you can, you can oversimplify that question or you can make it so complex that you don't know what, if you're doing good or not. But I, I think, I, think I, I get at least a hint into how I should, how I should maybe measure my, my preaching from this text. And, and I'll let you kind of evaluate me in real time. I don't need any response back on this if you think I'm doing bad at this. But um, if you have sat, here's, here's a way that I would like to, evaluate my preaching or I wonder how I'm doing but if you sat under my teaching for, for months or, or even years have you over that time begun to see yourself more as more and more sinful and if you haven't begun to understand yourself over being under my teaching for months and years as more and more sinful then then either I'm not doing a good job or, or you're not listening <laughs> Probably you're not listening. No, I'm joking. No, it, it could be that I'm not doing a good job. Because good churches and good pastors should communicate and cultivate a good understanding of the nature and doctrine of sin. And, and not just understanding it, like technically. Like I know these verses were evil continually all the time, or, or those verses in Romans. But knowing deep in their bones that you are sinful beyond measure, that it, is, it has got its hands all over you. And we, we see Paul communicating this often in his letters, communicating just the sinful. In Romans 1, he talks about the irreligious who neither uh, acknowledge God or give thanks to God. And then in chapter 2 in Romans, he, he goes after the more religious people. And it's interesting in chapters 2, if you look at chapters verse, verses 1 and 2, he talks about how religious people can tend to, to judge others, right? And what he goes on to say, well, if you were to take that judgment that you put on others and use that standard against yourself, then you would all fail miserably. So in the, in the last week or two, I'm sure uh, some of you have been upset with something somebody's said or done. Uh, really, these days, if you just take a peek on social media, you got about a five minute window before you get mad, right? And so, uh, and so anyway, you do that, whatever standard of judgment you're using, well, what Paul is saying, if you took that, that standard and turned it around on you, there's some way you're violating your own laws. And so we are sinful beyond measure. And like I said, you kind of peek into social media and you can kind of get that, uh, that, that the, the, the conversation, the arguments that are going out there because there's a shortage of controver controversial things to talk about right now. Like, for example, how about I said this? Hey, uh, we got three by five index cards. I want everybody to write uh, three sentences. Tell me what you think about uh, Donald Trump. Write that down. We're going to post it online later this afternoon. When you're done with that, uh, post how you think everyone's handling COVID-19. Paragraph. Again, we're going to post that online. Let everybody see that. Um, and then uh, third, uh, do you think people are racist? Um, one, uh, and B or A under that, uh, how are white people responding to racism? And B, how are black people responding to racism? Okay, so we can kind of cultivate that up and we can get in a good old fight, right? Like we're not going to be in agreement and that could be really hard. And, and in all those questions, we have it hardwired into our sinful nature to whatever other people are saying. There, there's two things that we're going to do. So, so let's say we're, we're engaging in those arguments on these controversial uh, subjects. There's two things in our sinful nature, sinful nature that we're going to be bent towards doing. One is this. In those conversations, it's not just an opinion. 
We're wanting to affirm our own goodness in our thinking. And the other thing we're wanting to do is to call attention to others' badness. Why these people are so stupid. Why they don't get it. And look, there's arguments. It's not that you can't have different opinions. I'm saying when you bring our sinful nature into this stuff, that's when it gets bad. And part of what makes it really bad is our desire to affirm our own goodness and call attention to others' badness. And most of our arguments with other people, family, friends, coworkers, we want to be clear that we are right and they are wrong. And more than that, we are good and they are bad. But it wouldn't be... And, and here's the thing, part of when you're the most vulnerable for your sin, sinful nature to, to act up is probably when you're right. I mean, we, we probably handle being right worse than we handle being wrong, right? Because that's just affirming that what the sinful nature wants is that we are good and they are bad and we start to do weird things when that becomes the, the way we are approaching people and arguments. But, but wouldn't it be great if, if we didn't if we didn't operate like that, if, if our first instinct wasn't to, to validate ourselves and accuse others, and what if instead we considered our own sin in the matter and, and knew that first and knowing that our tendency is to cover over our own sin and to inflate others? Now, earlier I, I said that, that what I think would make me or anyone a good preacher is to, to grow people in their understanding of themselves as being more and more sinful. Not, not to be more sinful, but to know that they are sinful. And, and that could fit into the stereotypical idea of like the, the preacher who just wants everybody to feel bad. Like if the preacher made everybody feel bad, then he did a good job. You know, it said about the, uh, the Puritans, uh, Puritanism is this, the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. That's what Puritans are trying, that's a problem to solve, right? But, but it's, it's the opposite, especially if you see sin as the main cause of misery. It's, it's like a parent pointing out to their child that their shoes are on the, on the wrong foot. The, the parent's not obsessed with rules. It's just, hey, that's, that's no way to live. <laughs> You're going to trip. It's probably uncomfortable. Put those on the, on the right foot. You'll be happier that way. I remember in high school playing football on Mondays, we would, we would watch the film. And it was always a tough time because uh, there, was, there was film. You couldn't make an argument that you didn't do that or did. It was just there. The, the annoying phrase that we'd always hear is the big eye in the sky tells no lie. And so you were just exposed. But the reason we watched film wasn't because our coaches were jerks and wanted to make us feel bad. They wanted us to be better. And they would often say things like, hey, if you, if you do this against this team, then man, you're going to get creamed. Like you need to correct this. So it was good and helpful. And, and a bad coach would come in after a bad game and say, all is well, you tried. And that's all that really matters, right? That would be a bad coach who doesn't expose the problems. And, and if you refuse to see sin, if you refuse to see your sin, there is very little hope for you. In this life, but especially in the next. Unexposed sin might be the biggest threat in your life right now. And there not, might not be anything more threatening, threatening to you than the sin that you're choosing not to deal with. Either you're not admitting it or you're blind to it. Either way, it's threatening. As Genesis 4, sin is crouching at the door. And that was the biggest problem for the people of Judah during this day. And this is, the exile was in 587 BC. Well, well, the year before that, their biggest problem 
wasn't their marriages, wasn't their finances, wasn't their kids or their job. Their biggest problem for the people of Judah was that their sin called for God's judgment. The biggest problem was that God had pulled back the bow of his wrath in full strength and it was aimed at them, all the while they are assuming God's grace. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Their sin was not exposed. They were told, peace, peace, and they experienced God's wrath. And the same is true in our day. Our biggest problem is not Donald Trump. It's not COVID-19. It's not even racism. Our most important problem is how do we stand before a holy God in our sin? And if your iniquity, your sin lies unexposed, you are in great danger of meeting this holy God and being on the wrong side of his faithfulness. Unexposed sin might be your biggest threat right now, and therefore, your sin being exposed might be your greatest hope. My second point, exposed sin as hope. Let's go back to Lamentations 2, verse 14. It says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. So, so what would have happened if, if the, the prophets of Judah, rather than saying peace, peace, when there was no peace, what if instead they exposed the sin of their day? And what if they told them about God's forthcoming judgment and the people of Judah repented? What would have happened if they would have repented? Well, we get that answer actually in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19 to 21. Go ahead and turn there because it's a little bit of a long passage if you'd like. Um, and, and again, Jeremiah and limitations, they, they go together. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah's warning about the uh, forthcoming judgment of God that's going to play itself out with Babylon coming in to take over uh, Judah. And, uh, and limitations is a lament after that does in fact happen. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19 Here's the question, what if Judah would have repented? What if rather than their sins being hidden, they were exposed and they repented? Well, here's what we see. Jeremiah 15, 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Verse 20. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. So what if they would have repented? Verse 19, God would have restored them. Like he said in Lamentations 2, 14. And in verse 20, God would have made them like a fortified bronze wall. The Babylonians would not have prevailed over them. God would have delivered them. And, and he had done it before with much less to work with. You, you read the Old Testament and, and God has a tendency of, of making God's people small to be victorious over a larger people. That's just what he's in the business of doing. His hand was not short 
to save. He, he was, he's bent towards doing that. He's bent towards saving that. That's going to be the main next week in Limitations 3. But he would rather save them if they repented than to bring judgment on him. But their unexposed sin kept this from happening to them. Unexposed sin keeps God's grace and goodness from us. Like insect repellent is supposed to keep insects away in theory. So sin keeps us from God's good things. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 5, verse 25. Your, iniquity, your iquities have turned these away. Listen to the second part. Your sins have kept good from you. Your sins have kept good from you. Judah's sins went unexposed. And for that reason, they were not restored. The reason they had bad things happen rather than good things is because their sin was not exposed. They were told peace, peace, when there was no peace. And they probably heard this over and over. Hey, Judah, you are God's special people. Look at these prophecies about how special you are in scripture. This is God's word. They, 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 they looked over the part about judgment when they would turn from him. And they probably said, you don't need to listen to this crazy guy, Jeremiah. He, he's one of those uptight religious folks that just wants to talk about sin and God's judgment and God's, God's madness. You know, God's great with you. You're fine. Everything's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're okay. But look, part of being a Christian means that you can say without qualification that you are a sinning sinner who sins, that you're eaten up with it. And, and we make no hesitation to say it. In, in 1 John chapter 1, 8 and 10 says this, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, so part of the essence of being a Christian is one that knows that they are eaten up with sin, that it is in their heart and it is deceiving and deep. Being a Christian means that you understand that, that you are deeply and deceitfully sinful. You're deeply sinful and that it goes beyond the surface. Your, your sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you're a sinner. When you speak harshly, it, it wasn't because you were provoked. It's because you have malice in your heart. And, and even if you think about, if you think about, you have, uh, I hate spilling coffee. coffee. Spilling coffee in my car while I'm driving, it's my, my little pet peeve, and I get really mad about that. But the reason, so, so why does coffee come out of my cup? Well, you can say, well, I hit a bump, and that, that made the coffee come out. But consider this, it was, coffee came out because coffee was in there, right? And so what, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, so we don't say, often we'll think, hey, I got mad, or this happened, or I was tired, no, no, all those things just loosened up the, the guards to let what's in the heart actually come out. And we're deceitfully sinful because we are innately brilliant at justifying our sin. We can almost always validate our sin as being at least reasonable. And on a good day, we can say why it was a good thing to do, right? And like I said, we live in a controversial time. The, the questions that divide us, even, even in our church, what do you think about Donald Trump? What do you think about COVID-19? 
And what do you think about racism? Like those things can erupt all kinds of things. But, but here's why those conversations will go so much better for mature Christians that have a good understanding of the doctrine and nature of sin. Going into those controversial situations, we know that our opinions are stained and twisted by our own sin. And so therefore, we know four things about our response in these types of conversations. And I pick these things just because they're the, just kind of the flavor of the month or the season or ice age, whatever it is we're in right now. But, but, but one, so here are the four things that we should bring into our, uh, our um, understanding of any kind of controversy that we're in. One, we could be wrong. We could think we're right, but actually be wrong. Two, we could be a little right and a little wrong. Again, all while thinking we're all right. And three, we could be 100% right. 100% right. But handling being right poorly. And then the fourth thing we do is we tend to see others in the worst light and not the best light. And so you add all that in and you have an issue where there's understandable positions on either sides and you got a big mess. And, and since we have that functional presupposition about ourselves, about our own sin nature, we can enter into those conversations a little more humble, a, a little bit more ready to offer grace with someone uh, we disagree with or someone we think is being a jerk because we know that we have the, the same problem. It just might show itself differently. Like, like the parable of the unforgiving servant who was released from this astronomical debt and then went straight from there to choke out someone who owed him much less. You know, the, the, the moral of that story is that he forgot his own debt. And so Christians should be those who understand that they have an immeasurable debt to pay that was paid for them through the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, they had a debt of sin they could not pay. Jesus took it on himself on the cross. And more than that, gave the credit of all his righteousness. His good record was transferred to us. So we had this astronomical debt that was put on Jesus and paid in full. And we had his good record that was put on us. And so we've been given more grace than we deserve. That's not even a good way to put it. The, the, the grace that's, that, that we can't even come close to deserving. And to, and to call it deserving even means it's not even grace. And so that's who we are. That's, that's who we are as Christians. And so we're going to get hung up about somebody saying something mean <laughs> or not treating us with respect or not understanding or not getting it or, or whatever it is. It, when we get there, we've lost the doctrine and nature of sin. And more than that, we've lost the gospel, which is the bigger deal. So we should never forget the unpayable debt that we cannot afford. And when others owe us, what I mean by others owe us, when they're, when they're wrong about their opinion about Trump, when they're wrong about COVID-19 or wrong about racism, then we can offer grace because we stand as those in need of grace. We have offended a holy God. It doesn't get worse than that. And we've offended a holy God more than they've offended us. As Christians, we have to understand ourselves as offenders before we understand ourselves as victims. I mean, that's who we are. We are Christians, are offenders to a holy God. And when we begin to see ourselves as victims, and look, that's not to say that people, like no one's a victim. Horrible things are done. Like horrible people do horrible things to, to some people, right? So I'm not saying that, that no one's a victim. I'm just saying when our identity becomes more that we are victims more than we are offenders of a holy God, then, then, then we're going to lose the understanding of the nature and doctrine of sin. And worse than that, we're going to lose the gospel. 
To be aware of the depth and deception of your sin is a sweet gift from God. It's not a curse, it's a blessing. First, it's the first step to being restored and reconciled with God and being spared the judgment and wrath of God. And the cross of Christ becomes so much more meaningful, so much more meaningful. And second, it it makes friendships and families more gentle and kind. And wouldn't so much be better if things were just more gentle and kind? If that was more the, the DNA of your friendships and your family? Unexposed sin is a great threat to you. And exposed sin is a great cause of hope for you. So may God expose our sin so that we can turn from it and find hope that he stands ready to forgive, to restore, and redeem.